should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. What's going on? Hello, hello. Welcome. Happy little Friday. It is Thursday. Welcome to the program. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. The show is your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. Our awesome, awesome young nephew, Kenny, is in the house producing the show. Kenny, how's it going? Going good. Yeah? Are yeah, you, yeah. Are you enjoying the shows and enjoying doing this? Yeah, it's really fun. Something new, different. It's going to, you know, it's, I think it's going to, we're definitely going to put more on your plate and oh, you yeah. should, if you're up for it. Um, not sure if everybody knows if you're tuning into the Progressive Voices Network, but I also produce a television show, the Michelle Miao show. So mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's on there as well. Have you watched a show at all? Not yet. Not quite yet. You know, it's available where you live. You're an hour and a half away from where I'm at. I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area. You're in what I guess Californians would consider Central Valley. It's about, I don't know, a few miles south of Sacramento, the capital of California. Yeah. So you also get the show Sunday night, 930. You can tune in to Channel 98 where you're at and watch. Some of the guests, um, sometimes we don't air the interviews on the radio program um, and that's because the format is different on the television show, but we'll get awesome guests. I mean, Ellen Page has been a guest on there. I just interviewed Susan Sarandon. Oh, yes. <laughs> Do you know who Susan Sarandon is? Um, no, I believe you told me that last week. I just big time award winning actress. There you go, feminist. Uh, outspoken. Uh, yes, my my <laughs> high school crush. But she was in uh, movies like Dead Man Walking, Thelma and Louise, um, uh, Stepmom. That mm-hmm. was well. That those were movies, I guess, in the nineties. I need maybe I need to fast forward it up for you a yeah. little bit. She still continues to do some awesome movies, and coming out with one called The Meddler, uh, which she plays a widow who moves from the East Coast to Los Angeles near the Grove, to be exact to be near her her daughter. And yes, it's a uh, mother-daughter flick, but I think that there are multiple messages to it. Um, and that is, you know, her character is this open woman who wants to help others. And I feel like we're missing a little bit of that, like this human connection where we we help each other. Now I feel like, you know, we're so distant because of technology, because we're glued to our phones. And because we think we're smarter than everyone else, it makes us a little bit of an asshole. <laughs> um, here, anyway, uh, you might have seen her, The Lovely Bones. Um, you might have seen her, let's see, what other movies? Mike and Mike and Molly. 
um, which is a television show, actually. She did a, you know, uh, she was, I guess, a guest on there. Uh, none of these are ringing a bell? Not yet. I mean, I'm pretty sure there's a full list of them. <laughs> Your mom knows who Susan Sarandon is. That interview is coming up. We won't post that until later. But I thought that it would be fun if I went back and I aired some of the television interviews. So if you're not going to the website at michellemeow.com and watching some of those interviews, we're going to play the television interviews for you. So today's program is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit pacificfertilitycenter.com. Um, uh, I think that, you know, we should start with some recent interviews, uh, that I've done, uh, that you might've missed. I mean, we've talked a lot about the changes that San Francisco is undergoing. A lot of it is economic, um, considering the tax breaks that the current mayor, Mayor Edley has, um, dished out or has given to large corporations that now exist are now headquartered in San Francisco, AKA like Twitter, <laughs> Uh, anyway, there are a couple supervisors here in San Francisco who have been speaking up and uh, out and against just the the changes. And not so much because they're not great changes, but because they're impacting the most vulnerable of the San Francisco community. So let's start with an interview that we've done with Supervisor Jane Kim. Um, and she represents the one of the poorest districts and fastest growing districts in San Francisco, which is inclusive of the Tenderloin. So some of you who may have visited San Francisco before, you would know the Tenderloin. Um, well, I guess, you know, because of the the homeless people who live in the streets of the Tenderloin, the, 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 the needle exchanges, um, things like that. So let's take a listen to that interview. Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. Our next interview is with Supervisor Jane Kim, and we'll talk to her about the changing political landscape right here in San Francisco. Let's get to the interview. So you've served two terms, two successful terms as Board of Supervisor here in San Francisco, District 6, right? Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure of it that you're doing a lot of reflecting and kind of looking back at, at all the work you've done. What do you think? You know, so um, I represent a very dynamic part of the city. I represent uh, the downtown area, which includes South of Market, Mission Bay, Treasure Island, and the Tenderloin. And the district that I represent is currently seeing 80% of all of San Francisco's residential and commercial development, um, which is extraordinary. So 111th of the city, we're building 80% of all of the buildings um, currently. Um, I also represent the poorest residents of San Francisco. And as of a year and a half ago, the wealthiest zip code, which moved from um, Pack Heights down to the south of Market. And so there is a lot that is happening in the district that I represent. Um, you know, and we in many ways image, mirror image, a lot of the issues that people care about and also some of the inequity um, that people are really scared about because we are mm -hmm. seeing that increasing here in San Francisco. And I think what is most alarming is that you know, it's no longer just the divide between the rich and the poor. It's now the divide of the ultra wealthy and everybody else because mm -hmm. everybody else is feeling squeezed out of San Francisco. Did you ever think that these changes would happen so rapidly? It feels like overnight almost. What was it like for you? 
You know, I, I think one of the hardest parts of being a policymaker is that it's really hard to predict, you know, what is going to come before you. I came into office at the depth of our recession. Um, jobs was the number one issue when you talk to our constituents. And um, we were making the last and brutal um, cuts um, to public funding here at the city level and also at the school district where I came from. And what followed um, the amazing kind of economic growth uh, that came around um, was in some ways unexpected, but I think what was hard to predict was how uneven this economic growth would be, mm -hmm. um, that it largely benefited those on the top, and that folks that were in the middle and in the bottom continue to stay exactly where they were. LGBTQI activists have um, pretty much have always been at the forefront uh, for, you know, the fight for equal rights. There's mm -hmm. a lot of young people who still come to the city, mm -hmm. you know, to, to be out, to be safe. And I'm feeling like that's impossible these days mm -hmm. to come here and stay here. San Francisco has historically always been a sanctuary city, um, whether it was for immigrants from around the world um, and also the LGBTQI community. And I am really proud to represent um, a district that has a long history um, of the LGBTQI community. Um, people often think of the Castro when they think of the LGBTQI community, but the South American Tenderloin has long been that home. And I think what was most stunning last year was when we, for the very first time ever, asked about um, sexual, uh, sexual identification in the homeless count. And we found that close to 25% of those living on our streets identified it as LGBTQI. I kind of personally feel like San Francisco is changing so fast, so rapidly. What if we don't have champions that want to preserve the work that the LGBTQI activists who came before us have done or the board of supervisors like yourself who have been so supportive of us? I mean, am I just being so cynical? Like, it, you know, should I look to uh, the day that the tech uh, boom explodes and we'll all be able to come back to San Francisco again? I, I am scared. This city has always been the city that welcomes everyone. Um, and, and it used to be, I mean, San Francisco has always had an affordability issue, but people could come here. Um, and, and that is rapidly changing. It is harder to come and escape here and be in a community of tolerance and acceptance um, when you can't afford to find housing. And I hope that here in San Francisco that we can really organize to ensure that we keep compassion that sweeping tents isn't the answer to homelessness, that we actually have to house people, that, um, that when you know, wealthy multi-billion dollar corporations come to San Francisco um, and say, we wanna throw a party for the wealthiest people in the world, that we don't just roll over and say, great, we'll pay for your, for your party. <laughs> you know, and then tell the Dyke March, you can't have your party at Dolores Park anymore because we invested all this money in it and now we don't want you to ruin it. I just feel like that's a dichotomy here in the city. And so the question becomes, who is the city really for? Who is the city really for? That is a great, great, great question. As of right now, it seems there's only a, a certain kind of person that is able to afford to live here in San Francisco. Uh, what are my thoughts? I mean, I, I want there to be a, a meeting of, of the middle. I, I do not believe in evicting, you know, elders who are 90 some years old from their home. I think that the, the people of San Francisco, the longtime residents, um, definitely need to be taken care of. 
And I think that those in, in power, I should say, or have resources. And if you're, you know, a uh, landlord, you're a developer, I think that you should have much more compassion. And then the new people who are moving in need to make sure that they also make room for, you know, San Francisco to continue being what it historically was. We have a few minutes. Um, I think that uh, we have time to follow up on that interview with the San Francisco Dyke March interview. And uh, we have Elizabeth Lanyon, who's one of the organizers of the San Francisco Dyke March. And it's just a follow up on what Jane Kim had said about Dyke March. So let's play that interview and then we'll go to break. Our next guest is Elizabeth Lanyon from Dyke March. While Folsom Street Events is seeing some incredible success and some inclusion from other communities around the world, Dyke March is experiencing a little bit of a risk, a risk of losing the lesbian or dyke and queer representation. Let's head to the interview. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Of course, it's glad good to be here. Let's let's give our viewers some context, some historical context. Mm -hmm. uh, how long has the organization been around? So San Francisco Dyke March first started in 1993. Um, it happened right after the March on Washington for Gay and Lesbian Rights, and a group of lesbians and lesbian avengers um, get together in D.C. and march the night before the gay gay liberation march and then they came back to their own cities New York um, and San Francisco and wanted to bring it there so our first one was in June of 1993 Wow and here in San Francisco for those who don't know the the route in terms of the march mm -hmm. um, where does it start and where does it end so it starts in Dolores Park historically it's always been um, any number of things in Dolores Park from a performance stage to a sound truck to um, a blessing by the Bay Area American Indian Two Spirits. It's a range of programming. And then we head out to the Castro. Um, we go down 18th Street, and then we make a left on Valencia. And then we come up 16th and land in the Castro where the pink party is, and we bring 50,000 dykes to the party. Can you explain just kind of, you know, uh, what's behind the, the, the dyke march and why people would jo join and why we should continue marching? Mm -hmm, of course. So the Dyke March started as a response to the lack of female voice, lesbian voice, dyke voice in the gay movement. Um, there wasn't visibility, they didn't have space, it was all focused on men. And at the time it was appropriate for that, it was the AIDS crisis and that was happening. But lesbians played a big role in that too, especially um, in San Francisco. So they really needed a space for visibility, they wanted their voices heard, the things that were happening in their community. So it was a rally against um, that lack of space. It was against um, patriarchy. It was against this overarching pushing out of female voice, not letting it be there. Um, and so that's how it started. It was really needing to have visibility around being a dyke and being a lesbian and what that means and how important we are to the LGBTQI spectrum. Um, and it's still that way today. I mean, um, there's not any spaces now in San Francisco strictly for lesbians. And so Dyke March is that beacon. It's been around 24 years and um, it's the only lesbian-specific event over San Francisco Pride Weekend, too. We're talking nearly 20 years later, and we're still faced with um, similar issues. Lack of women's spaces mm -hmm. being pushed out. Uh, that's happening at 
a, a very alarming rate in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you're throwing a lot of fundraisers and I'm guessing it's because Dyke March, there is a threat to the dismantling of the organization. Am mm -hmm. I right? Yeah, there is. You know, it's a volunteer run organization. So the cost is about $34,000 a year. And that's just to make the infrastructure happen. Um, the people power behind it is what's really, really important. And we've suffered the past couple of years with a lack of involvement in that way. Um, last year, we sort of were at crisis mode. That was, that was, I think, a big point for us is we didn't know what was going on with the park, which is our starting point. And we didn't know what was happening in the Castro. So our two bookends, the two pieces that hold the march were Un unknown. We didn't know what they were, and so it really put us at a at a threat. Um, we put a huge call out for organizers. We have 20 plus organizers right now. They are fiery and passionate and creative, um, and they're making it happen. We want to be back in the park this year, and we're going to march. We have a couple options for where we want to land. You know what? What's the scariest thing about not being able to be visible in San Francisco, which is the the beacon city, right, mm -hmm. for the uh, LGBTQ visibility. Mm -hmm. um, I think the threat to it is a lack of community. So if folks are not able to live in San Francisco, whether it be because they want more space for their families or they can't afford it because the rent is so high, there's not people here to rally around around the Dyke March or around us as a queer community. Um, I think that space and that feeling that you have uh, people who are in the same boat as you and people who, got, who have your back, that's gone if you don't have a, a you know, concentration of where lesbians live. Um, and that's a big, that's scary. It's scary to not know who has your back and who your friends are and where you can go and find these people. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for continuing to fight for our representation in our space. Space that lesbians, women, and those who support us desperately need to hold on to. If you'd like to get involved, please, please reach out to Dyke March. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.ale. G-R-E-C-A-R-E dot -E com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community.
And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us here on this Little Friday. Little Friday is Thursday, in my opinion. I think that uh, everyone's got one foot out the office or <laughs> one foot out the week. If you um, once you get to Thursday, you know, especially for me, I mean, I, I definitely don't work on uh, the traditional Monday through Friday schedule. But when Thursday rolls around, I just can't wait. I can't wait to get to Saturday in which uh, hopefully people just stop emailing, emailing me. <laughs> I sound so angry. I'm not angry, actually. I'm a pretty nice person. Anyway, today we are playing some of our um uh, some of the interviews that I've done, but they're done for television. So I do a television show in San Francisco for Coffee TV. It's the Heritage local station here in San Francisco, and so some of the interviews that I do actually don't end up on radio or on Progressive Voices, and that's because. The format's different. And so, you know, with radio, we like to go longer and more in depth with our interviews and the television show. I'm limited to half an hour. Um, and so we're just going to kind of play some of the, the most recent ones that you may not have heard if you don't go to michellemeow.com and watch the shows. Um, I think that, you know, what I want to do is play an interview with Harry Britt. Harry Britt was uh, appointed to Board of Supervisors um, when Harvey Milk was assassinated, he was appointed by Diane Feinstein. And so he lived through the liberation movement. He lived through the time and when it was very difficult to be out as an LGBTQI person. And here he is in his 70s, still living in San Francisco. Uh, he's seen the changes that we've, we've um, you know, that, that has impacted the community uh, economically, socially. And now here we are, you know, after marriage equality, what what are we looking for? What are we looking into in terms of continuing the LGBTQ rights movement, or I should say the equal rights movement? So let's take a listen to Harry Britt's interview. Our special guest tonight is Harry Britt, who is a longtime LGBTQ activist. He's a founder of the, one of the founders, I should say, of the Harvey Milk Democratic Club and also a former board of supervisor. He filled in the position for Harvey Milk after Harvey Milk was assassinated. Let's get to the interview. Harry, thank you so, so, so much for being on the show tonight. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I really do almost idolize those Whoa. who had lived during a, a time in which I wasn't involved in, and that would be the gay liberation movement. Um, so, Are we liberated now? <laughs> probably feels that way, although if it, we're liberated, but we're suffocated. Um, and I'm, what I mean by that is, you know, although we're out, now that we're out, people are focusing in on our, our uh, rights as they intersect. Um, and so I don't feel like we're 100% equal, but we'll get to that. But the, the best thing about liberation is not having it, it's, it's doing it. In 79, you were appointed to the Board of Supervisors by Diane Feinstein to fill the position uh, for Harvey Milk after he was assassinated. What was that like for you? Uh, I, I'm just wondering from like an emotional uh, standpoint, what was going through your mind? What were you feeling? Well, not just for me. Harvey represented hope. Uh, you know, all of us who'd survived a teenager in home, teenage years in a homophobic culture, 
Harvey said, it doesn't have to be that way. You know, be who you are. If you're a guy, put on your dress. And, you know, do, do the things that, 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 that are fun to you and that make you feel good about things. And, and all of a sudden, death became part of that equation. Uh, and it was, a, it was a terribly personal thing for all of us, and especially those of us who had the great, great pleasure of actually experiencing Harvey. Harvey wanted our heads held high. And as, as Martin Luther King did. So the 70s and the 80s in San Francisco were, for a little kid from Texas, a preacher from Texas, an incredibly liberating experience. Uh, and what's happened after has been pretty good, too. What about the changes, the gay community, and I, I'm being inclusive here, LGBTQ, um, specifically in San Francisco, do you feel that... Uh, you know, that it's, it's changed drastically? Does it look different? Um... In Harvey Milk's San Francisco, within the uh, uh, lesbian gay community, which is where I was functioning, um, there was a real split, an important split between how, do, how, do, how can we behave in ways that makes our life less difficult yeah. with how do we turn this whole situation upside down? And Harvey was a turn it upside down kind of person. Uh, his greatest pain was when he saw other uh, lesbians and gay men act in ways that suggested that we weren't as good as they are, that, um. that we had to be, act straight. Um, we had to be behave ourselves in, in a way. There was that tension within ourselves of how far out of the door do we put our foot? How much do we speak out? And uh, that was a psychological tension in every one of us. And it was politically extremely important. We knew how to behave mm -hmm. in a straight world, but we didn't know how to, you know, climb the ladder. Um, and, it, and it shows, though, in terms of... We have always addressed the differences uh, in opinions in our own community. Mm -hmm. um, and I would assume that that would be why there was a, a different organization formed in which you're you know, the founder of, uh, the Harvey Milk Democratic well, Club. Well, I, th I think Harvey was really our founder. Uh, the, the club grew out of his his political campaign when he was elected to the Board of Supervisors, really. And, uh, of course, it didn't become the Harvey Milk Club until after his assassination. Uh, but it, it brought into the process uh, a different kind of activist, uh, both women and men, uh, who were not conformists, but who really believed, you know, won't the rest of the world be so happy when they can be like us? And an experience, coming out experience of about who, whatever you need to come out of. It doesn't have to be uh, a gay closet. So uh, it was a very, very exciting time. You know, what are some of those historic or, or progressive values that we once held onto as a community? Uh, what are some of those values? Because when you talk about being the, the young kids from Montana who used to be able to come here to San Francisco, I, I'm not quite sure that they can do that anymore because it's become so expensive. Um, and, and maybe couch surf for a couple months, but they're quickly going to find that unless they have coding skills, 
it's going to be difficult well, to stay in San Francisco. Sadly, I don't think San Francisco can be to our community what it was. Not to that young man or young woman who's, you know, doesn't have a whole lot of money. Uh, so other cities are going to have to play that role. San Francisco is not the world. And I, I think uh, it's, it's really exciting now that we can know more about what's going on in other countries and other cultures uh, that was complete, didn't exist in our knowledge uh, back in the day. So uh, I think the... The, the different role of San Francisco, it seemed, it's sad to those of us who were there during the, the real days, but it's nice to know that good things are happening in other places too, and they most certainly are. If you could provide a message or some words of hope to the young LGBT who are living in post-marriage equality, who are growing up at a time in which didn't have to think about you know, coming out or it wasn't as scary as it was for you. Their situation isn't that different. Most, most people, I think, are one way or another a part of a, um, an alienated minority. And the answer to it, from Harvey Milk's point of view, is something called democracy. When you're weak, you hope the guy who's strong will be nice to you. And Harvey felt that learning how to get people to be nice to us was the most crippling experience that queer folk had because the things that we did to make them nice to us made us ashamed of ourselves. And that the answer has to be changing power relationships, uh, learning skills based on power and not on accommodation, uh, seeing in your own history possibilities for contributing rather than things to hide. And we still have a lot, a lot of that to do. Thank you so much. For, Thank you. For Thank you for your work everything and still being a part of our community and still taking the time out to mentor us youngins. <laughs> <laughs> and that was Harry Britt. And uh, you could hear me choking up a little bit at the end because I think that, you know, for at least those of us um, who did not live through the 70s, the 80s, and parts of the early 90s, I mean, if you, you were not a part of the LGBTQ liberation movement because you were too young or were not out yet um we need to you know it, it, it's it's an incredible gift that first of all we have someone like harry Britt who's still alive and who's willing to continue talking about um you know our fight for justice our fight for equal rights and and uh, you know i also believe that if you are a part of the movement now and you weren't then you may have a different perspective you may have a different outlook and it's good to remember what those of us went through in the 70s and the 80s because it gives us a different perspective in terms of uniting one another. Um, we may not be you know, fighting for this common goal of liberating ourselves, and it's starting to get more complex because now we're talking about fighting for trans rights, we're fighting for racial justice, we're fighting for economic um, equality and addressing the inequalities and the intersections of our community. And so it may sometimes seem as if one issue uh, is more important than the other. We've got to get back to a place where we can unify our community again, because that's what the other side, our, our opponents are doing, is they're trying to weaken us. Let's not get to that point. <laughs>
The next interview I'd like to play um, that we've done on the television show that we may not have played here on the radio program, um, I'd like to play an interview that I did with uh, the guys from Folsom Street Fair. Folsom Street Fair, uh, you know, is is a longtime organization that has confronted uh, sexual expression in this expression or freedom of expression. And they're at a place now where, you know, they're very, very strong. They've got a great infrastructure. They're able to sustain their organization. And you've got people who are coming from around the world to attend Folsom Street Fair that happens in the fall here in San Francisco. I think over 11,000 people come out. And it seems that, you know, it's more diverse as uh, in their celebration as it once used to be primarily gay men. So let's take a listen to that interview. Welcome back. Our guests tonight are Dimitri Moishianis and Edwin Morales of Folsom Street Events, two prominent voices and two leaders of an incredible organization who's been with us for over 30 years in the San Francisco Bay Area celebrating sexual freedom and freedom of expression. Let's head to the interview and talk to them how San Francisco and its changing landscape politically, economically, has impacted their celebration. Dimitri, Edwin, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Thank you for having us. So Folsom Street events, uh, uh, Folsom Street Fair is what um, I know it is the main major event that happens in the fall here in San Francisco. And there's thousands of people who come just for this event. Uh, my guess is, though, it, it wasn't that way when you first started. Uh, no, it was a little smaller. Yeah. Um, I first started in 2006, um, so about 10 years ago. And uh, the fair itself has been uh, around since 1984, and it did not start as a leather event at all. It actually started as a me means of bringing uh, the, the kind of concept of gentrification and south of market to a more visible kind of front uh, in the community, kind of saying, hey, this is a problem. There are working class folks who are getting displaced. Um, there are seniors and people who are um, you know availing themselves of social services? We don't want them to just get pushed out. You know we live here. We're a part of this community. Um, leather was always a part of uh, the fair from the very beginning, but it took many many years to evolve into eventually what it is now. I think it now. was like 1996 was the first poster that didn't just say like leather area, where it was actually a leather dominated poster. That is so interesting that you bring up, you know, that it started off of, uh, uh, you know, calling attention to the displacement of our community. And here we are in 2016 and we're still, we're still saying Dealing the same thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, how is, you know, the changes of San Francisco, the, the new face of San Francisco, how has that impacted your celebration? Um, I'd say that the, one of the most challenging things is just that there are so many more developments, um, you know, new, um, buildings coming in and sometimes they're great because they're social services and then you know that folks in need are getting the services that, that they require. Um, so we make sure that we're working with those folks. What do you think is the core, the, the, the meaning of leather and, and the leather community? Uh, gosh, it's so diverse now. I mean, I think that what kind of leather and fetish meant to the community maybe back in the 60s or 70s is very different than what it looks like now or what it means now. Um, but at the end of the day, I, you know, as I was saying to you earlier, it, it's just a good, fun, creative outlet for 
sexual freedom and sexual expression. So there's there should be, you know, nothing but support for it in my mind. Um, and, you know, luckily we have gotten nothing but support here in San Francisco. This this is also an event that could happen probably nowhere else in the country <laughs> like this. Do you think that there there is this uh, diminishing factor or something that contributes to the decrease of the LGBTQI presence in the Bay Area? Do you see that in your celebration at all? The comments that we will get a lot of times from uh, from gay cisgendered men will be, oh, it seems like there's less there's less gay people and more straight people here. And uh, we were watching a documentary, and at the very second fair, someone was making, in 1985, someone was making the same complaint. Um, <laughs> there's less gay people and less straight people. Um, I think for the fair itself, you know, it really is a, a pretty diverse spectrum, um, and sexuality is also diverse in there. Um, I actually, the first four times I went to the fair uh, as, a, um, as a fair goer was with straight friends, or heterosexual friends. And we just did a survey with the city that I know Pride did as well, and uh, we added some demographic questions in there. So we found out that 80% of our audience self-identifies as LGBTQ. Um, you guys give back to the community in a huge way. Can you talk about that? Um, yeah, I, the very first fair, we actually um, benefited two organizations, one which is still around today, the Shanti Project, and um, the other one, I can't remember the exact name of it, but it was a, um, you know, it was a local anti-gentrification um, or you know, support for people who had been displaced by gentrification organization. And um, to this day, you know, our fair is powered by volunteers, and they come from organizations, uh, from direct service, arts, um, advocacy, nonprofits um, from all over the Bay Area and um, now all over the state. There are so many questions I want to continue asking, especially <laughs> about uh, your philanthropy and you know, HIV AIDS organizations are big uh, beneficiaries of Folsom Street events. Um, and there, it, there's this uh, relationship that is ongoing um, that Folsom Street is committed to in addressing the HIV AIDS community, right? Absolutely. Um, you know, as Edwin said, since the beginning, we've been um, addressing the HIV AIDS crisis. Um, and it's something that is continually important to us that we try to find ways that uh, we can address that, support the nonprofits who are doing the direct service. Um, and that's always been a focus of ours. Give us some important dates to remember because, you know, I think that uh, people need time to prepare for these events coming up. Last Sunday in July, which um, we have Up Your Alley. Um, the Saturday night before that, we have um, Bay of Pigs, which is our pre-party. Uh, it's a play party, so also don't bring your kids. Um, <laughs> and then, um, so the last Sunday in September, um, we have the Folsom Street Fair. And then the day before that is Magnitude, which is our giant circuit party. We're going to end the interview with this fabulous video that uh, Folsom Street <laughs> Events put together, which I think is so creative and it's so great that um, it, it really touches on freedom of expression and freedom of uh, sexual freedom or, you know, all, all that stuff, but, but done really well. Yeah. So we're going to check that out.
Thank you, Dimitri, and thank you, Edwin. Thank you for working so hard to keep this incredible celebration here in San Francisco. I, uh, I just realized that we played the video and you guys, you're listening on the radio, so you didn't get to see, see the video, but I think that you can Google it or go to Folsom Street Events and it's up on their, um, either their social media or their website, uh, but it is a pretty uh, well done video. It's awesome. It's like seven minutes long or, or longer than that. Um, so let's get to another interview. Let's play an interview actually that I did a little while back, you know, I would say late last year with Ellen Page and Julian Moore in their f- film Freehold. And that was a movie about, uh, you know, yes, discrimination, discrimination against a lesbian couple. Um, one of the, uh, the, the partner involved in the story uh, was dying of cancer or had died of cancer. And so this particular story happened in Boston. Let's uh, hear the interview. Welcome back. I had the awesome opportunity to interview Julian Moore and Ellen Page about their new film, Free Held. Free Held is based on a true story about Laurel Hester and Stacey Andre. Both women fought the freeholders or legislators of New Jersey in order to get benefits, domestic partnership benefits, and they changed that law forever in New Jersey. Let's head to the interview. Thank you so much for this film. Not only are you starring in the film, but you produced it. Tell us, you know, what this film means to you and you know, how the documentary, when you first saw it, what, what, what struck out for you? You know, I was just so moved by their story. I was moved by their love and dedication for one another. And I was horrified at the cruelty and how they were treated. And um, really, I just feel grateful and honored to be a part of telling their story. They're, you know, heroes and responsible for where we are now and, you know, the privileges that I now have in my life as a gay person. Do you think that you're also, you know, not only a a Hollywood star, a celebrity, but a gay activist? Would you consider yourself a gay activist as well? Absolutely. Um, For me, it's actually all felt very natural, you know, um, in the sense that I, uh, you know, I, I came out so I could be a happier person and because yes I wanted to be a visible person for the community um, and if that helped anyone in any possible little way it would mean the world to me and um, so th- thrilled to be it but to me it feels actually it's felt very organic shall I say. Uh, you play Stacy Andre and um, I mean I loved I loved everything about the film I mean of course you have us at tears and uh, you tell the story so beautifully you embrace Stacy's character so well even going to I, what I heard was that you even learned how to change tires because she's a, a tire service manager right so tell us about playing Stacy and um, and and playing her with uh, authenticity and making sure that people understand the plight that she went through. Sure well of course that was the goal right Right. The goal was to tell, uh, I can speak for Julie, myself and Pete and Ron Nicewaner who wrote the screenplay, the goal really was to make something as truthful and as honest and as authentic as possible. Um, and the opportunity to meet Stacy, spend time okay. with Stacy, was really special. She's really an extraordinary person. Can I have your number? I, I, I wanted to do my best to be able to um, inhabit something that resembled, you know, I'm obviously different in a lot of ways. so. Um, but yeah, when it was fun to, I'm horrible at anything with, anything that involves fixing things. I have no skills, <laughs> really. I have no skills whatsoever. And uh, so it was fun to learn how to rotate tires. But I'm sure 
I look like a moron to anyone who knows how to do it, but hopefully to the general public, it passes. Thank you again for doing this film and for being you and, uh, and you know, living with us in this exciting time and being that voice for us. When it comes to telling queer stories, you've been doing this since, I mean, before anybody else was telling queer stories. Um, so how do you feel about being a gay icon? I feel flattered, very, very flattered. I think one thing that we all know is the gay community has great taste. So if, you've, if they've selected you and like your movies, or you, it's, it gives you a good feeling. I feel very flattered. So in the movie Freeheld, you play uh, Laurel Hester, and she's a police officer. There was this, um, you know, scene, and, and it seemed to be the catalyst um, for her equal rights fight, which was every day she's fighting for justice. She keeps positing on the documentary. She says, you know, her entire life she fought for justice for other people, and now she wanted justice for the woman that she loved. And that's really, that was really it. You know, Laurel was a highly moral, ethical person. She believed in the justice system. She believed in doing the right thing, and she believed in helping underdogs, too. And all her life, she devoted her, her, her whole life to that. And now, suddenly, she was in a situation where her partner, her loved one, wasn't going to be treated as equal and it 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 incensed her you know and that was that was what she wanted to do before she died in my 23 years as a police officer i've never asked for special treatment i'm only asking for equality one of the things i noticed about laurel's character was that she was very afraid to come out because obviously, right, you know, she's a police officer and so some of the small things I noticed about was that um, just it was like debilitating for her to come out. I mean, how did that make you feel to, to play that role and to experience that as Laurel? I think, you know, it's interesting. I think, I think certainly, well, actually really working with Ellen gave me an insight and a great deal of compassion for what her situation was because it really had been a long time before anyone in my life had, had since someone had come out. I mean, because I'm, you know, I'm older, so people had come out in college, people come out in their 20s. At this point in their life, people are kind of established, they had families. So here I was working with this, this young woman who very recently and very publicly came out. And so to talk to her about what it felt like, what it felt like to not disclose her sexuality, how how she felt discriminated against. I thought that was incredibly touching. Um, we don't see enough, you know, uh, lesbian-inspired films, and even women, right? In Hollywood, um, we're having a big discussion about uh, women and their roles in Hollywood. And so, this film being here in San Francisco and it's uh, everywhere, and, and, and the success of it, how does that make you feel? It feels pretty special. We love this movie. Like I said, I was very, very moved by these women and by the documentary and feel honored to be a part of it. And I, th I think the movie is a celebration of who they are and what they did. And then just as an actress and somebody who is in the film industry, to to um, to be able to be in a movie with another woman where we're, we are the main attraction, where we're the two stars of it, that's very unusual and, and something to be celebrated. If you could have anything, what would it be? That's your dream. A house, a dog, a woman I love, loves me. Mm, me too. The film, undeniably amazing, uh, you know, connection with Ellen Page and playing her partner. Um, so talk to us a little about that amazing connection. Lucky was I to meet Ellen. She's such an extraordinary person, so open and honest and, and sensitive and so completely without defensiveness about everything. I mean, she's really remarkable that way. And we just, 
we hit it off right away, and and I feel lucky that we had that connection, um, both personally and professionally. And I had a real partner. We had a partnership, you know, on screen and off. I was always excited to go to work because I was excited to work with her. I felt like we did everything together as a unit in the way that I hope that you know Laurel and Stacy felt. And and I, and we. No, it's, it's very unusual to have an actual bond with someone. You can get along with people and even make friends. But, I, but this, was a, this was a very special experience for me with Ellen. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Like us on Facebook and share us with your friends. Find out more at facebook.com slash progressive voices. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining me here on this little Friday, Thursday, I should say. Uh, we're playing back a few uh, interviews that I've done for the television show that I have, I have not aired, actually on the radio show that airs here on the Progressive Voices Network. And uh, a lot of the reasons that I don't air them is because the format's just so different. So you can tell the interviews are a lot shorter. They're way more condensed. Uh, so I hope you're enjoying them. We have a few minutes left. I think that, uh, you know, I'll, I'll play a couple more. And um, I think a good one to, to play would be, since we brought up Ellen Page, you know, she's just been killing it in the last couple of years since coming out and being a champion for LGBT rights. And you could see that in, in her work. So, you know, sometimes it's unique when LGBTQ people come out, they don't uh, just, just go ahead and become that spokesperson or that activist. Um, And I'm not going to judge, you know, but with Ellen, she has really not only continued to be the fantastic uh, actress and producer that she is, but she's starting to include LGBTQ issues in her work. So we did an interview with Ellen and her co-host Ian Daniel for her new show, Gaycation, that airs on um, the uh, on Viceland. I was going to say Vice Network, but the network's called Viceland. And they've already wrapped up season one, which was awesome. They've traveled to Japan. They traveled to um, different various countries around the, the world and in talking about LGBTQ rights. Uh, so let's take a listen to that interview and kind of what this project meant to Ellen and Ian. Welcome back. Our next guest is Ian Daniel and Ellen Page, out actress and my hero. <laughs> and they have a new show out called Gaycation. While some might say it's a travel show, I think it's a lot deeper than that. Ellen, Ian, thank you so much for being here with me tonight. In Gaycation, your new docuseries featured on Viceland, the show explores the LGBTQ community in different parts of the world, but it's not necessarily just a travel show, isn't it? Um, well, yeah, I think I think I think naturally when um, because the show is focused on LGBTQ cultures around the world, of course, you're exploring the the joys, the the, the triumphs or just the day to day life or the party scene and what have you. But 
of course, you're also focusing on the struggles and the discrimination that people face or uh, the reality of their lives because they're oppressed. And, and naturally, that's, that's a huge part of the show as well. Ellen, as a big fan of yours, I was super shocked, actually, to see Ellen Page the human versus Ellen Page the actress. Was this whole experience, was it, was it a learning experience for you as well, as much as it is for the viewer who learns about LGBTQ culture, uh, the people, and, uh, and how their lives are impacted? I mean, you know, absolutely. I think that's the, that's the thing, the biggest thing probably Ian and I talk about together is just is how much we learned uh, on this trip, how much we continue to learn, um, how humbled, how inspired we've been by some of the most incredibly brave, courageous people you could ever have the opportunity to meet. Um, and, you know, it's, I, you just feel like, oh my goodness, you always just want to know more. You mm. know, it's, it's, it saddens me in general that we don't know more about LGBT history, let alone what's happening all around the world, let alone what's happening in this country, you know. So um, I just feel so fortunate to have this experience that's, that's allowed me to, to learn so much. In the first episode of Gaycation is, is in Nichime, or you feature Nichime in, in uh, Japan or Tokyo, which is the LGBT or gay neighborhood. And there are parts of it that are overt and then parts of it that were very silent um, as far as the LGBTQ community, and especially sexually. That was definitely very overt. What was that like for you? You know, uh, to speak to Nicho, man, I mean, Nicho is just such an interesting uh, place on this earth, right? And so it's 300 LGBT-centric uh, bars in a like a one, two-block radius. Um, and so that was just a, I don't know, it's just a beautiful experience to see people there have places to express themselves, to uh, play with gender, uh, to be who they want to be. And yeah, so I think there's, there's that exists in Japan. And then there's also parts of the country where it's, you know, it's just remain silent. Don't ask, don't tell. Let's keep it hush hush. And um, so it's difficult for a lot of people to to be open and to be outward with their expression. And I think that's what we encountered on the show. And but, you know, that makes for an interesting episode because you get to see the fun parts and the, the hidden parts and the underground fun LGBT culture. But you also have a really full emotional experience with the, the, the facts about what people face there, you know. Ellen, just through the first episode, I felt like the major message we have to take away from that is that we really need a cultural shift in order to be more tolerant and accepting of LGBTQ people. Would you say that that can also be applied to here at home, the United States? Oh, I mean, absolutely. Yes. And, you know, we have an episode. We do go. We go to Japan, Brazil, Jamaica, and we do have an American episode. And, you know, of course, that's focused on the celebration how, of how far we've come. You know, that we were, you know, we were out in New York and Pride right after the Supreme Court decision. And that's a part of the show. And then naturally, it's also about all the issues that we still face, you know, on the road to true equality um, and the issues that people face who are who are much more vulnerable than me, you know, trans women of color having a life expectancy of 35 in this country or 40% of homeless youth being LGBT, uh, 31 states where you can be fired in night housing just for being a member of the community. So um, that that naturally is, is a huge focus of, of that episode and, and also a way to, we don't want to remotely seem like we're going to these other countries with, you know, any kind of judgment. You know, we're going with a total open heart and open mind to, really just hear from the community and, and know what their experience is and, and then be able to reflect it back on, you know, 
the country where we where we live. Many hugs and kisses to Ian Daniel and Ellen Page for this awesome, awesome new show that showcases the LGBTQ community around the world. I can't wait to see more episodes. I think if you go to Viceland.com, you can check for details on local listings. And, uh, you know, if only Ellen Page and Ian Daniel tweeted out a word about this show on Coffee TV. <laughs> Don't go away. We'll be right back with final thoughts. The Michelle Miao Show is brought to you by Kaiser Permanente. Come join us and thrive. The Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center, right by your side. Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. Nissan Infinity of San Francisco. It's amazing in here. And Maui Sunseeker, your home under the rainbow. Thank you so much for joining me here on Little Friday or Thursday and just playing a few interviews that we've done on the television show. Like I said, uh, I produce and host an LGBTQ inclusive talk radio show here on the Progressive Voices Network, but also um, on television for Coffee TV in the San Francisco Bay Area. Although it airs uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area only, I do post the episodes up at michellemeow.com. And so coming up this Sunday is an interview that I did with Susan Sarandon and director-writer Lorene Scafaria on their new film, The Med, excuse me, The Meddler. And uh, it's about, you know, this widow that travels to Los Angeles or moves to Los Angeles uh, to be closer to her daughter. And although we see their the dynamics of their relationship and how they both uh, deal with their grief and trauma of losing someone they love, uh, you also pull some some different messages from it, and that's because Susan Sarandon's character, uh, Marnie Minervini, <laughs> I love it, Marnie Minervini, um, is so giving. You know, she's inherited all this money, and she doesn't want anything to do with it, and you know, she tries to help Freddie, a guy who she met at the Apple store. She listens to Beyonce for the first time. She pays for a lesbian wedding. Uh, you know, and, and, and there's some goodness out of that. And I, so I think that you should see it. It opens up in the Bay Area April 29th. And I think everywhere else shortly after um, you can check your, your local listings for it, I'm sure. So, Kenny, you know, I, I, I always like to check in with you. We do so many of these interviews and I constantly learn so much from everyone. Um, what do you think? With? With just the, uh, so today, you know, we played interviews from, ranging from someone like Harry Britt, who was alive when Harvey Milk was assassinated, Harvey Milk being one of the first out politicians mm -hmm. who really, you know, um, I would say who was part of the drive for the gay liberation movement, mm -hmm. to someone like, you know, Ellen Page, who just came out two years ago and, and is really trying to get into uh, being an anchored voice for queer rights. Um, it, it, does it all feel like, you know, do you ever think about like how crazy hateful and hurtful it is out there for gay people out there in the world? Oh yeah. I feel like it could get very scary out there. I mean, with people who don't, you know, don't really, you know, like seeing that, you know, <laughs> it, it can get scary. But, but I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure of it that, the, that the, the, this is what I'm learning is that not everyone knows how discriminating it is for gay people out there. Oh, yeah. Um, it's, you know, it's not, I say it's not cool to discriminate. No, but, but, I'm, but I'm, I'm being very serious here. Mm -hmm. If you weren't involved in this program, if you didn't watch my show. Yeah you probably wouldn't know how hard it is for a gay person 
um, you know, to to just walk outside, like right? Wouldn't know. I mean, as far as like, yeah. it's just not unless yeah. you've got you know gay friends or you got a gay cousin, you got a gay aunt, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I mean, I do. So that is the power of visibility, my friends. That's why we do what we do here. So thank you so much for joining me and for supporting the program. You can catch the Michelle Meow Show on the Progressive Voices Network Monday through Friday, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. And then on Sunday at noon, we air B.B. Sweetbriar's It's Everything with B.B. Sweetbriar, who's a drag queen extraordinaire in San Francisco here and talks about everything. Um, And then Fridays is uh, week-to-week political roundtable talk with John Zipper of the Commonwealth Club. I also do a television show as we have played the interviews here. You can head to michellemeow.com, click on TV, and all the episodes are up to date. You can always send me an email. I love hearing from everyone. Head to michellemeow.com, click about, and uh, there should be a contact uh, uh, you know, thing there. Anyway, see you tomorrow, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. Have a great weekend. 